Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have returning to the podcast our old friend, former bishop, Tom Wright. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Good to be with you again. You know, it seems like you put books out like every two or three months, and I'm very grateful for that because it gives me an excuse to get you on the podcast. So thank you for being so prolific of a writer. Well, it, it's it's a happy accident. I, I um, This book was actually written 18 months ago, and uh, then I put it to one side because I knew it needed some more work. And finally, HarperCollins got fed up waiting, and they gave me, assigned me a kind of sub-editor who worked on it with me. Phew. Okay, so we got it out. Um, and then the pandemic book just happened by accident. Um, you know, people were asking me to talk about it, and the publishers said, please write it up. These things happen. I can't help well, it. Well, one of those specific people who asked you to write the pandemic book was your wife. Uh, well, sort she of, She said yes. she liked it, yeah. She liked, she liked the article that I wrote for Time magazine, which is unusual. I mean, unusual that she liked it. Um, and, and, uh, and then <laughs> when so I, she usually doesn't like your stuff? Uh, well, she usually says, oh, well, I suppose if that's what you want to say, or what's that effect? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, my, I just put up my second book, and my wife's like, well, I like the first one better. And I was like, honey, <laughs> you're allowed to think that. You don't have to say it, though. That kind of... Ah, yes, yes. So this is one of the, one of the many reasons God gives us spouses, is, is, I think, to keep us humble, certainly in my case. Uh, it is definitely my experience as well. So uh, the wife, you liked the first piece for time. And so that became the book that came out rather quick. It was yeah, very, very quick is, turnaround this, on it. This is the British edition, God and the Pandemic. Yeah. Oh, I like that. That's nice. Well, yeah. I, I feel like I need to give you credit. I did a sermon at our church about how to understand the pandemic. And I basically just ripped off your entire book and told okay. everyone to go read your book. So um, thanks for basically, you gave me a Sunday off, even if you weren't in Texas. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. So, okay. You ha- you have uh, the new book is entitled "Broken Signposts," and it is, uh, you know, part two, the follow up to "Simply Christian," which is one of uh, obviously I-, I love your uh, almost all your write all your writing, but this one especially was something I really appreciated. Yeah. And it- that came out how long ago? Like a decade ago? Uh, Simply, Simply Christian? Christian was fifteen years ago. I wrote that in. 2005, because it's dedicated to my first two grandchildren who were born one in May and the other in September in 2005. So Uh that dates it for me. Um, So it's like 15 years. And in a sense, it's a follow up. In a sense, it isn't. It's a different kind of book. Um, What happened with Simply Christian was that after a lot of struggling, it took me three or four years to figure out how to say this. I started with those four themes of justice, spirituality, relationships, and beauty. And I ran this argument that we all know these matter, but we all know we all mess them up. And isn't that odd? Um, You know, if they really mattered that much, you'd have thought we'd got them figured out by now, but we seem not to have. And then when you tell the Christian, when you put that problem on the shelf, and then you tell the Christian stories, ah, now we see why all that is important but problematic. And why and how we can actually address the question of how we, as a community of Jesus followers, can be people of justice, beauty, etc. So that's part of the underlying argument of this book, but I added three more, as you'll have Mm -hmm. seen, freedom, truth, and power. And this time I did something quite different, which is that each of the themes, I'm running that whole argument, isn't it odd that these things matter? Isn't it strange that we mess them up? But then I go to John's Gospel, And I've never written that much about John's gospel. I'm a New Testament scholar, but I've tended to concentrate on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul, to be honest. Um, So I I go to John's gospel. I say, now let's 
ask John about justice. Let's ask John about freedom. Let's ask John about truth. And each time there's all sorts of things which come up. It was a thought experiment for me and it was really exciting to watch what happened as I was doing it. What uh, what made you spend so much of your time focused on the synoptics and Paul at the expense of John? Well, uh, in the New Testament scholarly world, in the world which hosts things like the Society of Biblical Literature annual meeting and most of the great sort of seminars and so on, the Society of New Testament Studies and so on, the world of Johannine scholarship is a world unto itself. And uh, if you are working in other fields, um, historical Jesus, for instance, or Paul, um, it's very difficult to break into Johannine studies because there's so much been written and so many theories that catching up with all that is difficult. If you're trying, as I was as a young scholar, to catch up with and then to become um, one of the key players in the Paul world and also the historical Jesus world, because um, the scholarship that I, um, the, the scholarly world that I grew up in, uh, was an accepting of the 19th century idea that the synoptics are about the human Jesus and John is about the divine Jesus. Now, mm-hmm. I never bought that. But if you're talking to a bunch of people who have all bought into that, then if you write a book about the historical Jesus and without further explanation, stick in a lot of stuff from John's gospel, they're just going to say, sorry, that's not the conversation we're having. And so because I wanted to be in conversation with people like Ed Sanders and Geza Vermesh and Paula Fredrickson and so on, um, I said, okay, John is for another time. Um, I'll come back to John. I'm not saying I've made up my mind about it because I haven't. But um, so I focused then on Matthew, Mark and Luke. And if you look at my book, Jesus and the Victory of God, obviously it's very much Matthew, Mark and Luke focused. Mm-hmm. Plus, uh, you know, all the other sources that are there, whether you call them the Gospel of Thomas or whatever, I wrestle with all those sources as well, but it's very much synoptics, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so uh, I've always enjoyed John. I've always preached on John a lot. I use John in prayer and in leading retreats and that sort of thing, but it, but I've never been a Johannine scholar. And so this is really uh, kind of a fun exercise for me in getting into John at last. So it's I, I like that it's fun for you. For, for me, like the synoptics <laughs> made more sense to me. And, yeah. you know, John always seemed like he was like the freshman philosophy major who's got like all this, yeah. you know, fancy pie in the sky stuff. And it, 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 it troubles me because he doesn't talk about the kingdom enough. And when I'm talking yeah. about the gospel as a kingdom, he doesn't talk about it enough. It creates problems well, for me. Well, the, the kingdom is there in John, of course, but um, it's partly that you're introduced to Jesus as king right away as Messiah. And the royal theme is actually very powerfully present. But for John, it's more about the temple. And uh, the temple is hugely important for Matthew, Mark and Luke as well. But with John, it's absolutely front and center. This is about creation and new creation. And if the original creation was God's temple, the heaven and earth construct Mm -hmm. um, with humans in the middle as the image, um, then it's clear right from the opening paragraph in John. The word became flesh and tabernacled, pitched his tent in our midst. Now, if you go back to the first century in Judaism, the idea of a temple and then of the new temple and of somebody who stands at the middle of this, which might be like the high priest or somebody, this is all about how God becomes king. God reestablishes his temple. God comes to dwell in the temple. And this is the way in which God will dispense justice and peace and mercy throughout the world. And all of that is going on behind John's gospel. But just as he doesn't actually describe 
the baptism of Jesus, just as he doesn't actually describe the bread and the wine at the Last Supper, he kind of takes those for granted. There's a lot of places in John where you have to read between the lines and says he knows that we are supposed to know about this or that or the other. And he is going through and in behind somewhere and telling us something else that's really going on. So reading John is quite a, quite an art form in itself. Yeah, you, you make some great connections about king and temple, which for some of us is like this is the first time connecting with that. And uh, the assumption uh, that many of us had all along is the idea of the tabernacle or and the ensuing temple is that it was some sort of like retreat away from the world. This, uh, to use your language, a, a safe hiding place while the world yeah, went yeah. to hell. But yeah. I like the idea that you're saying it's a bridgehead into the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know if you know my big book that came out a couple of years ago called History and Eschatology, which was mm-hmm. my Gifford Lectures from 2018. Chapter five in that book, I explore the whole temple and creation theme in the Bible as a whole um, as a way of getting into what's actually then going on in the New Testament. And for me, it was a revelation a decade or two ago when I first started reading up this stuff and then discovered that a lot of Judaica scholars and Old Testament scholars had been talking about this for a long time, namely that the tabernacle in the wilderness in uh, the back end of the book of Exodus and then Solomon's temple were designed to be microcosms. They were small working models of creation not in order to take you back to the original creation, but in order to say the original creation was the beginning and we've messed a lot of stuff up, but now God is coming to live with us in order that eventually his presence might suffuse the whole world. And there are wonderful passages in scripture which jump out at you when you start to see this, like the the bit in Numbers 14 when Um, The spies go to spy out the land and they come back and only two of them say, let's do it. And the other 10 say, we need to get back to Egypt. This is not going to work. And God is really mad with them. And one of the things that God says is, don't you realize that my glory will fill the whole earth? And you think, what's that got to do with the spies and the land? And the answer is that the land itself, the holy land, the promised land, is an advance metaphor for the fact that one day God will flood the whole creation with his presence. And so the tabernacle where God comes to live in the midst of his people, which is a very dangerous thing, which is why you have a book called Leviticus, which is basically the health and safety regulations to to make sure that you can cope with having God living in the midst. Um, that then that that is so that Israel is constituted as the people who are bearing this promise, this dangerous promise with them, that one day God will do for the whole creation what he's doing now. And the other passage which I love on this is Psalm 72, where it's all about the vocation of the king to do justice, to look after the orphan and the widow and the stranger and so on. And it repeats that again and again. And what we know about the, the, the king in terms of the temple is that whether it's David or Solomon or then much later Herod, The king is supposed to build the temple so that God may come and dwell in the midst of his people. But in Psalm 72, the king does justice for the widow and the orphan and the stranger and the vulnerable in order that God's glory may fill the whole world. And it's the same logic that the king's vocation is to get things ready for God to come and live there. I I have wallowed in that theme these last um, 10 or 15 years and I see so much of it 
in the New Testament as well as the Old, because of course then it runs all the way to Revelation 21, where the whole creation is the new temple, yeah. with the new Jerusalem as the Holy of Holies. I, I could talk about this all night. Yeah, so. no, there's a, a lot of great stuff in here, and uh, you mentioned the uh, the book before that you did at the Gif- Gifford Lectures. Yeah, um, yeah. We had a, a podcast about that one, and okay. we had an okay. interruption in the middle because you had a wardrobe that was being delivered during that podcast. Yeah. And you mentioned at the beginning of this book uh, your troubles in putting together a wardrobe. So what I think is that the podcast influenced this book. And so this is like full circle. This is in some ways an inclusio to that. That started this conversation. And now well, we're that's finishing hilarious. Yeah, I, I had totally forgotten that. But, yeah. but yes, that, that, that wardrobe was a real pain because this mm-hmm. house we're now living in, um, our old wardrobes from our previous house wouldn't go up the stairs to the top oh. landing because the stairs are too twisted. This is yeah. an old... 17th century house so we had to get this wretched flat pack thing <laughs> well and what that did is it gave you the opening metaphor for your book it and it you did. know we're, we're glad that that uh, got you here but <laughs> the, the connections between king and temple very fascinating insight yeah. in the book uh, one of the things that you connect that i hadn't seen before is the idea that the king's promise to build a temple for god, a house for god and then in return god promises to build a house for the kings but the house isn't a literal house but a family in which in that house jesus shows up Exactly. And, and I mean, it's one of those things, that sequence of thought that you've just run exactly right, uh, which is in Second Samuel chapter 7, mm-hmm. I, I know where I was and when it was when that first hit me like a freight train. Um, and it was, it was back in I think, 1988, and I was preparing to preach a sermon on that passage. And I was sitting in an airport actually studying this text and trying to figure out why does God say, I will build you a, oh, wait a minute. Hmm. This is going to be the place where God will ultimately dwell is not a building of bricks and mortar, but a human being. Yeah. And that transition, wow. And, and then the early Christians pick it up. And it's very interesting because in all the Jewish literature about a coming king or Messiah, I do not know of any ancient Jewish texts which use that text from second samuel in the way the early christians do because what it says is i will raise up your seed after you which in the septuagint the greek translation is kai anastasotospermasu which of course the early christians saw oh my goodness the one who has been raised from the dead is the true son of david who is the true son of god as in the one in whom God himself has come to dwell as in a temple. And from there, it's a straight line to Paul's Christology and to John's and, yeah. and on from there. All that to say, we, we've come to appreciate John, and we found this to be fun to engage with his, his work. And one of the things you make the argument for is that John's contribute, uh, contribution to like modern discussions on spirituality is the mind of the Second Temple Jew who would say that heaven and earth were always designed to overlap. And so some like even the way that we understand now, like what is spirituality is connecting with something bigger than ourselves, it always was part of the picture that there was this connection between heaven and earth. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And uh, it, it's frustrating for me because I find now when I preach or teach, um, even reasonably well-informed theological students, but certainly ordinary folk in the pews in church, are still thinking like deists or Epicureans of a distant God who maybe we can get in touch with, but it's kind of a, a long-distance telephone call, as it were, and we're not sure if the line's going to work. 
um, instead of using this temple image of heaven and earth coming together and of us being called to live, not just to stand for a moment, but to live at that intersection. Yeah. And that that's what prayer is all about. That's why prayer is so important, but so puzzling. Um, because we, we don't find it easy living on the borderlands of heaven and earth. But that but that's that's what human life is supposed to be all about. Yeah, you, you talk about the, the maybe three of the mindsets, the the Epicurean, the step, uh, this, uh, the Stoics, and then the the Platonist, the idea that you know the Epicurean, yeah. like you know God's not around. The Stoics that it's within me. The the Platonist yeah, yeah. that you know we got to get out of here and like ascend to. Uh, and we have a soul which is somehow in touch yeah, yeah. with upstairs. Yeah, but the, the like the Christian teaching is that he- heaven and earth are, are are coming together. That that God is in this. There is the spearhead now, and it's going to continue to to expand uh, as the kingdom yes. you know moves forward. How do you think we can help uh, ourselves and, and our churches and our, our, our people to kind of move away from those other mindsets into this more kingdom yeah, and, yeah. and heaven sort of mentality? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is difficult because people flick back into default mode. And I, I know this because we all do it in different areas. You know, what we are used to thinking, we hold these strange ideas in our minds for a second and then ah, we go back to where we were. And I've seen people do this with heavens, justification and so on as well, of course. Um, But on on this one, I find that once you hold before people this possibility and you give them the temple or the tabernacle as the image and how that story works, then for many people, this is so new that um, it's actually intriguing. They've never thought of it like that before. Um, And then it does start to resonate with uh, for many, many Christians, moments when they have had that sense of heaven and earth coming together. Mm-hmm. And I, I find, I mean, I, I have to preach on this coming Sunday night. And um, one of the themes of that sermon is music, that that um, music is a strange gift. I mean, it's it's an intriguing thing that when people have very severe dementia and, and that the mind has started to disintegrate, music is usually the last thing to go it's it's still music can still get through and i think that's a sign to us that 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 music is designed strangely as a means of joining heaven and earth and in my tradition in in church um we actually built these great medieval cathedrals where the whole point is this is far too high for humans to live in but it's a symbol of the angels and archangels being Mm -hmm. around and the only the only way we join in with the angels and archangels is when we sing. And then the, the voices, particularly the boys' voices, they resonate around the rafters as a sign to us that our worship is actually the joining of heaven and earth. And of course, we say that in the Eucharistic liturgy as well. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. And for years, I used to say that and think of it as sort of, so how come we sort of jump upstairs at this moment? And the answer is, you're not jumping upstairs. At this moment, when you take the bread and the cup, heaven and earth are coming together, and we get to be part of it. Mm-hmm. So uh, all of that to say, there are many different ways in, but I think actually people are perhaps more ready for that than they are to be told about 
um, the second coming being Jesus coming back here to rule and reign rather than Jesus coming back to snatch us away and so on. Well, you know that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the idea of, of beauty. You, you know, 15 years ago in Simply Christian, talking about beauty is one of these signposts. And one of the things that you say in this book, um, and this is obviously Johannine, uh, that you're referencing is that many things are better said in poetry than in prose. And so the, the yeah. beautiful poetry of John 1 that, that tells a sort of cosmic intro of who Jesus is uh, does something that a more like nuts and bolts tangible definition uh, seems, um, you know, uh, incapable of accomplishing. And so this, this, uh, this act of, of, of music, of beauty, they point us to something beyond, whereas these sort of overly technical, in, in some ways, uh, you've probably experienced this as well, sometimes when people want to explain who God is, they create something that feels more like an instruction manual than you know a piece of art and an instruction manual it's very literal it tells you everything nuts and bolts exactly what's going on but it misses the all-encompassing all that's created by it yeah yeah that's very interesting i'm tempted to ask you to name some names (laughs) as to whose instructions to god you're thinking of but you needn't do that no um i I have to do a little talk to the theological society in wycliffe hall here in oxford tomorrow Mm -hmm. and i'm going to talk about um, standing our theology upside down from normal. In, in other words, instead of mm-hmm. assuming that the purpose of it all is for us to get to heaven, uh, instead take the biblical view that the purpose of it all is that God wants to come and live with us. Yeah. And and the question is, how can that happen, granted who we are and so on? Everything looks different once you say it that way. But I think what you put your finger on there, interestingly, is this cultural problem of the last two or three hundred years, which Ian McGilchrist names in his book the master and his emissary where uh, mcgilchrist is a brain scientist as well as a cultural critic and he's observed what happens with schizophrenia where the left brain takes over from the right brain as though the right brain didn't really matter the right brain is what does um, narrative and metaphor and myth and poetry and art and music and faith and the left brain is what does counting and calculating and grammar and and all the nuts and bolts and, and McGilchrist, having shown how that works in terms of brain science, and I know that there's all sorts of arguments from the psychologists as, as to how precisely all that works, but having made that case, he then says, look at post-Enlightenment culture. We have become a left-brain culture, and we do that even in theology, which is exactly what you said, that we line up the attributes of God and we analyze them. Well, since God is like this, then this means A, B, and C, so we can take C and we can develop that and then produce three arguments this way and four arguments that way. Um, And actually, you then turn around to the New Testament and you think, oh my goodness, this is like listening to a Mahler symphony, having just been watching a car taken apart and reassembled, you know, that which would you rather? uh, Okay, you want to get to town tomorrow, you probably better get your car fixed. But the purpose of life is more like a Mahler symphony than fixing a car. Yeah, exactly. Now, I've heard it, and like you, I am not a psychologist. Uh, My dad is one, so I feel like I get some honorary degrees out Mm -hmm. of it. But Mm -hmm. the idea that like these sort of like spiritual uh, encounters that you have with with the transcendent happen maybe in the in the right brain part of your processing but then when we try to explain it it has to jump over to the left brain to turn it into words and details and in the very act of taking it from the right brain to the left brain it uh, in some ways waters down what the experience is and so i've heard that mystics would not describe some of their most transcendent experiences because they didn't want to defame them by trying to reduce them to words 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and that is something which is common to poets and artists and so on. Um, I quoted ages ago um, in one of my books, I think it was Margot Fontaine, the great ballerina, um, who was asked what she'd meant by a particular dance. And she said, if I could have said it, I wouldn't have needed to dance it. Yeah. And, and I think that that's the kind of insight that we need. Um, and that those of us who spend half our lives in universities, which is all about crunching words and making sure you get translations accurate and mm -hmm. so on and so forth, we tend to think that you reduce everything to words and there you've got it. That's the reality. Whereas, in fact, the words are signposts, that word again, pointing to a reality which there might be other ways of getting at. And certainly for me, as you know, music yeah. is, is certainly a primary way in. So, so obviously, music. You know, uh, many people know that you're uh, you, you love to play the guitar. Uh, you're a big fan of the acoustic <laughs> yeah, guitar. Not, not, not very well, but not very well. Well, I mean, better than me. So uh, you got something going for you there. But uh, so that's that's something that obviously connects to you. Uh, for many of us, though, if we live in you know a, a setting that encourages to read a lot of books, including books that describe themselves as systematic theologies that sort of systematize yeah. the the divine, which seems like a pretty overwhelming task for anyone to do, uh, or someone like myself who has a degree that says I have mastered divinity, which again, a <laughs> little bit pompous there, uh, yet I still have the degree hanging <laughs> on my wall, so I'm not going to make too yeah, much fun yeah, of it. Why not? But uh, why not? how do we resist the temptation to the immediate or the tangible and trust that the, the cosmic and the poetic uh, is enough, even if it doesn't always satiate what we want as a tangible definition of God? Yeah, it depends on the context you're working in. Mm -hmm. You know, if you are talking to a, a youth group, you would do it one way. And if you're talking to um, a, a bunch of uh, what in what in my church would be the Mother's Union, you would do it another what, way. What's a Mother's Union? To, what? A Mother's Union is it's an Anglican institution which has actually done an amazing amount of good work, particularly in the two thirds world, where. Um, in the days when church was basically organized and led by, by the men, okay. then the, the, the women would get together, um, not simply to, to make the tea and so uh -huh. on, but to encourage one another. And particularly, it used to do, it still does in many parts of the world, great work in helping young mothers, but so older mothers getting together with younger mothers and helping them think about some of the problems of bringing up children and okay. some of the pitfalls yeah, of, yeah. Of, of rearing awkward babies and so on. And it's in the two-thirds world, it's done an amazing job of um, uh, uh, of hygiene, of teaching people in various different cultures a lot of basic things. So, I mean, I, I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying if I was talking to the Mother's Union, yeah. I would want to, to do what you're saying in one way. But if I'm talking, doing a seminar as I am tomorrow at Wycliffe Hall to seminarians, to postgraduate seminarians, then naturally it'll come out differently. But I, what I would want, the thing that I would want to come out, whoever I was talking to, is this sense that we are here dealing with, you know, we're not messing around here. If God is God, then... Uh, we are standing on the edge of this vast ocean with our little buckets just trying to pick up bits of water here and there. And we may be able to map the ocean a bit. We may be able to plot which way the tides are moving fine. But don't imagine that we control this ocean. Um, you know, we are just lucky to be able to swim in some of its shallower bits. Yeah, and, uh, and, and I think that also creates a level of humility 
which sometimes is sure, lacking in our discourse where uh, of course. we become very uh, bellicose with each other because we feel like we have it mastered and we, we know the right way yeah, and therefore yeah. you're, you know. Yes, um, I, I'm, I'm fortunate in that I haven't lived in that sort of a world that much. From time to time I've run into that. But um, working in the sort of churches I've worked with, uh, there hasn't been that much of that. The, a bit of a bit in the Anglican Church, the the attack from the sort of 1960s liberalism. Oh, you can't believe this. Oh, you can't believe that. Oh, Paul just had indigestion when he wrote that <laughs> bit, and so on. And that does get a bit bellicose sometimes in both directions. Yes. People trying to defend Paul against that sort of attack um, and his ethics and so on. Um, but uh, we in Britain don't have an equivalent of the kind of almost stand-up intellectual fights that are quite common in various circles in North America. And I watch this going on, and I think, I'm glad I don't <laughs> have to be front and center in that. Well, Obviously, I run into it a bit, but uh, not in the way that some of you... Well, if you want to, afterwards, I could get you set up with a Facebook or a Twitter account, and you can get plenty of that whenever you want. Just post your ideas on there and see how that goes. Do you, do you know what? I'm trying to post my ideas on the book on the bookshop front at the moment. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that'll do me. Yeah, no, yeah. I I feel like the you know engaging with books is probably a little better way than uh, that. Um, okay, we, I feel like we kind of jumped ahead of the book. We just jumped right in. Sure. Um, so the idea of the book is you've taken the four four signposts from Simply Christian. You've added a couple more because you can do that when three, three more. yeah three more because it's your book, so you yeah, can do yeah. that. And one of the things that you, you notice is that we, we find these things that we know are valuable. We find these things that we know that are uh, central or transcendent, that, that point us to God, but we don't always accomplish them. And so we have this idea of what... Well, we, it's not just we don't always. We, we, we never do. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, human, humans as a whole just try to do justice and fail. Etc. Etc. Yeah, and we want to do you know love, or we want to community, or we want to experience beauty, but we've we've mucked it up quite well. And you yeah. know, you have uh, one quote about beauty that uh, we love beauty, but then as uh, there's a philosopher named Theodore Adorno. No, I don't know. Adorno. Yeah, there we go. Who says one cannot write poetry after Auschwitz, after Auschwitz. which is a a. a, a a, a very, I, th- I think it's a very honest statement about. It's hard for us yeah. to express. At least this is my take on the line: the the beauty of humanity when we can see front and center the awful atrocities of humanity as well. And so there is this yeah. tension of we can't live up to this, yet we still know it's it's it, it's it's transcendent. So, yeah. yeah, I feel like that's been the question for many of us: is if these things are signposts to God, how come these signposts always seem so broken? Yeah, well, th- that 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 is the question, and that is a way in to asking the theological question that we usually label the fall. Yeah. How come humans are so flawed, so bent, so broken? And of course, then the other end of that argument, which I spell out more in History and Eschatology, Chapter 7, um, is that when we come to the gospel story with these seven broken signposts in our heads, then we realize that the story of Jesus going to the cross is a story of maladministration of justice, of beauty denied, of freedom trampled on, of power abused, etc., etc. In other words, all these broken signposts, um, it, it isn't that we have to get the signposts straightened up so that they can at last point to this distant, glorious God. We discover that God has come down to the place where uh, our world is full of broken signposts. And so the cross is the ultimate 
um, location of where those broken signposts are pointing to precisely in their brokenness. And then we discover the redemptive truth that Jesus in taking all that onto himself and then coming through into the resurrection is saying, now join me in remaking my world in terms of justice and freedom and truth and so yeah. on. And that, that, that's the real challenge. Yeah, exactly. When we think of you know, the broken signposts of spirituality, it, it seems like it has problems unlike other ones because it, it is the very you know, task or the, the very challenge of connecting to who God is. And the way that we have yeah. done that, we, we find yeah. time and time again, it just becomes uh, a problem. And so there's this kind of, it, to me, it feels like a, this sophomoric thing to go, well, let's get rid of religion and we're just going to be spiritual. As though, uh, as though any of us can can Quite. enter this this task of connecting to God on our own, as if we're ever doing this. Yeah. <clears throat> the, the image that comes to mind, which m- most of your listeners, I think, will will know well, is from C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Lucy blunders into the wardrobe thinking it's just a wardrobe, and lo and behold, she's suddenly in this strange country. And then when she comes back and tells the others, they think she's just playing a game, and they try to get into the wardrobe, and it's just a wardrobe. Oh, Right. And it's only later when they jump into the wardrobe without thinking about it that they find they're in Narnia as well. And I think what Lewis is there getting at is precisely this um, elusiveness about the presence of God, that we don't control God. We don't lock him up or unlock him. We haven't got a mechanism which we can easily come with to say, "Okay, God, my turn now. Um, You have to show up because I say so. Rather, God has left signals all over the place which often when we stumble up to them without even realizing it then it turns up turns out that 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 we find ourselves in god's presence um and and that's why that's why worship is so important because if it's even beginning to approach genuine christian worship it 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 must be humble It, it must be a matter of humility it must be a matter of Oh, Lord, open our lips, you know, please, if we're going to praise you, we need you to pour out your spirit upon us. And that, it seems to me, is the classic stance of Christians in worship, not we know who God is and we can label him and then uh, acknowledge him or take off our hats and say, yeah, we've got you figured out and we think you're pretty good. Um, But rather a sense of awe and reverence and like Moses at the burning bush or Joshua when he meets the man with the drawn sword take your shoes off fellow because you're on standing on holy ground here oh surely the lord is in this place and i didn't know it as jacob says and and that that's that's that sense which we all need to be open to and you can't manipulate it um god will not be manipulated as i'm i'm talking around in circles but you hear what yes I'm sir saying. yes sir and again that that language from jacob surely the lord is in this place and i don't even know this is again that that understanding that you know heaven and earth were never meant to be distant and far apart but there's all these ladders that yeah. are popping yeah. up as yeah. you know, signposts yeah. so to speak but you know so we have this thing of yeah. you know religion seems to be complicated for many of us as the jewish prophets even spoke of the complexity of religion when they spoke of you know god does not like your sacrifices god hates your worship gatherings and uh, so that's always been there this critique of the broken ways in which religion can turn and one of the things that yeah, that yeah. you highlight in that chapter is the gnostic temptation to believe that it is a uh, a religion that is revealed from within instead of Christianity, which is a redeemed, a redemption religion. Now, 
I, as someone, I feel like I, I sometimes find myself tempted to talk about, you know, uh, the essence of who we truly are is being revealed within us. And I think the corrective you're giving us is that Christianity is always something that redeems from, from the outside. Is that how you'd say that? Yes. Well, yes, it's very tricky because you're on a very fine line here. Um, because when God works by his spirit in somebody's heart and life, there is that about the resultant new human being, which is the true fulfillment of what God put that person there in the first place to do and be. Um, but as soon as you say that, it opens the temptation to say, there it is. Um, we, we all have things we want to fulfill. That's what it's about. And God will just come and bless that. Um, or worse than that, God will just acknowledge that as, as okay, that's who you are. And so uh, if you go too far one way, you're in danger of denying the goodness of the original creation. If you go too far the other way, you're in danger of denying the need for actual rescue. And you get into a pan a panentheism yep. or a pantheism um, where I have the spark of the divine within me. Everything is in God and God is in everything. And so we're all part of that. And we're just sort of finding our way within that, which collapses into either Gnosticism or indeed forms of Stoicism. Um, and so it's a, I think as with many doctrines and spiritual practices it's very important to keep very clear where the dividing lines are and it's partly that in the western church we've not had a very well thought out theology of the holy spirit very often and part of the point of the spirit is the spirit comes uh, to heal to rescue to transform but also to make whole to, to, to make us the people God wanted us to be in the first place, but we, we the people we couldn't be without the work of the gospel and the spirit. Um, you yeah. see how that delicate balance has to be maintained? Yeah, no, I, I hear that tension because you don't want to undo you know, the, the foundation that we learn in Genesis, that we are created not just good, but very good well, in the image of God. The, the first article of the creed is, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of course then of human beings, um, within the heaven and the earth and Gnosticism basically doesn't want a good creation because oh, this present world is a mess and I've got a spark of life which enables me to be off somewhere else thank you very yeah. much and that's why I know uh, the secrets of the universe which you poor benighted people don't know that's why Gnosticism is one of the default modes for post the post-enlightenment world because the enlightenment thought that we the enlightened ones the modern western white usually people um, we had the inside track on what life was really all about. In fact, in terms of world history, we're the weird ones. As a recent book by a professor in Harvard called Henrik, I think. Have you seen that mm -hmm. book? Um, the Weirdest People in the World. Um, I think he's a social anthropologist. Study of, of post-enlightenment humanity mm -hmm. as being out on a limb in terms of how all other societies have organized themselves for the whole of human mm. history. Very interesting. Yeah, stuff. interesting. I definitely have some people I think who should be in that book, uh, but I have not have not read it yet. Um, I, I'm afraid. I'm afraid we're all yes, in that sir. book. Yes, sir. So, like the the temptation of like let's get rid of that. You know, God is the creator of all things, and then also the other side is when you're in a situation where you know Paul's words in, in Romans about I do not do the good I want to do, but what I do is what I don't want to do. And well, when that experience becomes your experience, you realize I, I can't just fix this on my own. I need something outside of myself 
to deliver, to, to save me from what I am turning myself into, you realize that the divine spark in you is there, but there's also something you need transcend that pulls that out of you. Yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. I, the trouble with words like transcendent and its opposite imminent is that they tend to import ideas from somewhere else in as though the transcendent is the reality mm. and God is one example of the transcendent, as it were. I know it's not what you were saying, yeah. but I'm just sort of thinking, thinking aloud, really, how one says what has to be said. Granted that the word God is a name that we use for someone who certainly from the Christian point of view is deeply mysterious. And to think that by using the word God and putting 17 attributes beside him, we've kind of captured yeah. him. Mm, no, it doesn't work like yeah. that. Back to what we were saying and, and that's the problem for some is that they hear the word God and all they can think of is this sort of reduced, overly defined, processed thing that they've heard uh, in yeah. you know maybe a not so uh, healthy religious setting. And so they... They just want yeah. to, you know, jettison that word because what it's been for them yeah. is problematic at best. Yeah, yeah. And I, I understand that. Um, just like people who have been bruised by any experience that should have been good but has turned yeah. sour. Um, you know, people who have been brought up within a very dysfunctional home yeah. and a very brutal and abusive marriage who then say, I'm not going to get married. I've seen what marriage is like, and that's not for me, thank you yeah. very much. Or people who have had an abusive father and say, I just can't use the word father for God because my father was such a horrible character, blah, 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 blah. And I, I get that. I understand that totally. Um, at the same time, there is a redemption of the notion of fatherhood. There is a redemption of marriage, which is there in the gospel. And part of the task of the church is to help people who've had those really bad experiences with God, with the church, with marriage, with family, back into a place where actually the love of God, the parable of the prodigal son, the father who runs down the road to this poor battered little yeah. lad, um, you know, the, the, the people people need to be brought back to that rather than just staying where yeah, they are. Yeah, that's a, the, the tension. You know, one of the things that, you know, there's a lot of conversation for, for some about the pronouns used with God. And, you know, some are very comfortable with the, you know, the, the biblical pronouns of he to, to describe God. Obviously, whoever does that is not the first person to do that because that's, you know, common throughout Christian history. Others go, well, you know, like you described, a situation where the father role has been so so cancerous that if that's a starting part for the conversation, then they can't even have the conversation. You go, well, how do you, how do you yeah. redeem, but also be sensitive where you're coming from? And I think that's just, that's more art than science. And we've got to be graceful yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah. You make this uh, great connection in the book elsewhere about the, uh, the famous myth of uh, the, the one who makes the Faustian pact with the devil, who is given oh, yeah. everything, yeah. basically power, influence, prestige, um, but at the end of life, you know, the devil's going to take their soul. But the only caveat is right now in this day and age, they can't love. And you must not, yeah. love. must not give your heart to. Something. Yeah. And, and you make it well, you know, that's a, a you know, fitting parable for where we are right now. But you, you, uh, you make this picture about what love is, is that love is this thing that absorbs all. It absorbs all the evil, it absorbs all that's bad. And that's how it overcomes and so this beautiful picture of what love is is seen in the incarnation. Here's here's a quote. Um, uh, this is where we realize that the Faustian pact by which an individual or a whole culture can give up, quote, 
love in order to gain power is an exercise in ultimate world-destroying futility. Love itself is the most powerful thing because it is love that takes the worst that evil can do and absorbing it defeats it. That's a beautiful picture of what love is, of what the incarnation does. Um, I, I think that's just a, a, a beautiful picture that sometimes we miss. And one of the things that you, you do is you have this great illustration about uh, the pyramid, which has these massive stones and you can, you know, 50 million pounds or however much tons, whatever it weighs. If you, if you had a giant, turn it upside down and you put it all on one yeah. little spot, like that is the Christian story that yeah. it's all about love incarnate in Jesus. That's what overcomes everything and everything hinges upon yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I'm glad you picked that up, and I'd forgotten about the pyramid image, but uh, I don't know if you can see see behind me on the on the shelf there. I have three um, three three pyramids yeah, yeah, just yeah. next to the globe. Yes, sir, there. Same, yeah. um, uh, I, I bought them in the gift shop by the Pyramids of Giza when I was in Cairo a few years ago. <laughs> so they, they come from the real really? place. Um, but, but, uh, but uh, yeah. I think people find this really difficult to get their heads around because um, we have this sort of democratic sense that if God is just, he ought to act always the same in every situation so that it's fair for everybody, as it were. And the idea that he does one thing at one point in history uh, with Jesus in one place and at one time and not at other places and other times, pe- people say that that's, that's unfair, it's undemocratic. But um, something quite deep in the biblical revelation of who God is, is to do with God being committed to what we loosely call the historical process in order to redeem it. it God comes incognito in the incarnation in order to, 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 to launch his kingdom or secretly, if you like, um, on earth as in heaven. And this is so difficult for the modern West to get its collective mind around. But so for me, that the pyramid image helps with that. But the other thing to say there about love bearing it all is, of course, that is a hugely demanding thing. And when you read that paragraph to me, I think, well, that's what I believe happened on the cross. And I hear myself saying to myself, that's how I should be in my relationships. Thank you very much. And I think, oh, I'm a long way from that. I've got, I've got a lot of learning still to do, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And if my wife is <laughs> listening to this conversation, say, yeah, you certainly do. Um, uh, and, and, and as I said before, that's fair enough. That's one of the reasons we have spouses is to remind us of our own mortality and frailty. Um, but uh, I really do think in the New Testament, it says that so often, if God so loved us, we should love one another like mm-hmm. that. And that's the First Corinthians 13 thing. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That is a huge and high standard. Um, but if we're the people of the Messiah and if his spirit dwells in us, then that's what we should be aspiring to. Yes, sir. To. Yes, sir. Well, the, uh, the book is entitled Broken Signpost. It's, uh, I think it's out right now. And uh, I enjoyed the book. I appreciate you writing it. I appreciate you taking the time to come back on the podcast <laughs> Uh, I assume that means you're going to have another book out in about four months from now, and so we'll have another excuse to have you back on the pod. About about five six months, there will be a commentary <laughs> on Galatians, God willing. It's um it's in the press at the moment, and um, I'm expecting the the the, the page proofs okay. fairly soon, and I think it'll be out maybe in March, so so maybe five or six months. That is quite 
That's quite impressive. I heard a story about you once that I've told as though it's true. And so don't disprove me if it's true. But I've heard a story once that you were at a conference and you present a paper. Someone had, uh, or somehow they, they wrote a response to what you had proposed. And that evening, you go home and you write a 20 page paper with citations and all the you know technical order that is required in that setting. And you have it ready for the next morning for them. And, um, I can't imagine that. So I appreciate whether that happened or not, that you are a quite prolific writer. I, I, I don't know if that happened or not. I have often in conferences gone back to my room in frustration and tried to bash mm-hmm. something out. Um, sometimes that works and sometimes it, uh, it depends entirely whether you're on top of the subject or not. Uh, but, but, uh, but sometimes, particularly in a conference or a seminar d- situation, um, everybody knows what the texts are and who said what, etc. So you don't have to have your library there mm-hmm. to look everything up, but but you can see, oh, you said this, but you've forgotten that, and then we need to clean this up. And so that sort of stuff writes itself, um, especially if uh, if you're at the kind of conference where you're with friends and you're buzzing all the time mm-hmm. and just the, the mind is going. Yes, uh, <laughs> well, I'm glad that I don't feel like the need to ever do that at conferences, but I'm grateful for all of my parishioners who feel the need to write emails like that after my sermons to give me critiques as well. So well, that's good. That's good. I, I, I wish I'd had more critique of my sermons. The trouble with the Church of England is that whatever you say, two thirds of the people at the back uh, at the door will just say, lovely sermon, vicar. Um, and, you know, the shumph just... Did it, did it make any impact at all? So one, one does what one can. So bless you in your, in your own pastoral and Yeah, all the best. Well, th- thanks again for the time, and uh, thanks, thanks for the book. It's very good thanks to see you. Thank God you. bless you. Thanks, thanks for checking much. out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>